student resistance in the classroom. Um, I'll have that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm the only one who has that. Yeah. Uh, but I teach religious studies, right? Uh, so, um, you know, when, um, you know, when you encounter any kind of opposition, either, I, I guess on multi-levels, one, in the classroom from students, because uh, you are in Texas, <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, secondly, from your institution, because both of you have tenure, and um, you know, so taking risk on the way to tenure, I'm sure both of you did it, uh, but it is risky. Um, so, what kind of opposition do you get in the classroom and from other colleagues, um, the institution at the institutional level? Uh, yeah, I was going to say something about the tenure track piece before we even uh-huh. jump into the okay. The classroom and institutionally, but uh, I've always been sort of naive about, not naive, I guess I knew that it would be risky to mm-hmm. do such things on the tenure track, but I just did it. Yeah. Um, I just felt like, what's the point otherwise? Um, I do know, I have some colleagues who are not, not at this institution, but at other institutions nationally that have said to me, I literally did not teach about diversity until after tenure because I felt like it was too risky, right? Yeah. Um, and I understand that it, it was a, a few decades ago too, so it was even riskier at the time. But I just have found that I can't turn that off. So risky or not, our institution has, I've never been told not to teach about something or to tone something down in my classroom or anything like that. But um, I just wanted to mention that and then we can talk about like what happens when we do get to class, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I am newly tenured. Okay. So I've been teaching this way since I got into the classroom, and it is scary. I'm a woman of color. I'm not, you know, until very recently untenured. Um, I'm a first generation college student, the only person in my family with a PhD. So there's all this, mm-hmm. you know, feelings of insecurity walking in, and then am I going to be perceived as this radical feminist on yeah. top of on top of it all. Um, But I think like Kim said, it's just something that I cannot turn off. And I think if we are going to challenge these institutions that are created for people not like me, um, if we're going to challenge white supremacy, patriarchy, et cetera, Mm -hmm. um, we must do the work. We must do the work. Not all of our students are going to appreciate it. And that's okay. Um, I'm hoping that a lot of my work is planting seeds. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that it does benefit a lot of my students. So I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about um, culturally relevant pedagogy. And then also mm-hmm. uh, a comment that I got my first year here when I taught the psychology of gender, race, and sexuality. And um, at the end of the semester, there was a written comment that said, um, when I first When the class first started, I thought that the teacher, that the professor had an agenda. And by the end of the semester, I figured out that she did. She wanted us 
to learn how to um, analyze the world from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like that was really wonderful um, yeah. because there was a lot of resistance and there often is a lot of resistance. But it's also not, it's also creating assignments or exercises where they are the creators mm-hmm. of that knowledge, of it's theirs, yeah. and they own it and they feel like, you know, that they did create it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second piece I want to talk about is culturally relevant uh, pedagogy, curriculum, cues in the environment. Um, this work has been done by uh, Stephanie Freiberg, um, rising scholar Rebecca Covarrubias, um, and me, and then from the field of education, Angie Valenzuela. And the point here is to um, include the history of those groups of people. You need to understand that. Um, mm-hmm. The theory, strategies, and resources, of course, to contextualize those practices. Yeah. Um, and of course, that's going to take a lot of, you know, investigation on the part of the person who is teaching the courses. Um, but research is showing us more and more that this really makes a difference for students because mm-hmm. they feel like they are represented. The education, yeah. um, that that space is for them. It's not just for um, white men or white people, but it is for other yeah. groups. Yeah. Um, and that validates subjugated knowledge it right there. It does validate it. Counter storytelling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And right. then the values of also, so an intersectionality helps us be better teachers mm-hmm. because it requires us to look closely at what is the meaning of education for different groups. Yeah. A really Eurocentric assumption is that it is about individual accomplishment. Yeah. Um, Whereas for collectivist cultures, it is about how do I get a better education? How do I build networks and, you know, gain these skills to help my community, not just my family, but my larger community? Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the work that my research is involved in. In terms of the student resistance piece, too, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about, uh, so there's a chapter by Tim Wise and myself yeah. in the Deconstruction Privilege book where we talk about, you know, how do you teach teach these difficult topics, especially privilege awareness without shame or blame. And that was sort of yeah. um, his <laughs> And you know, he talks about in the book, in the book, um, approaching things that are less uh, taboo for people first. So mm-hmm. he'll, he'll maybe say at a talk he's giving at a college, how did you all get in this room? Right? So tell me how you <laughs> physically got in the room. And then he said, you know, if you were in a wheelchair, how would you get here? Well, how would that change? Right? So he has them mm-hmm. sort of think in their mind about disability in a really non-threatening way for them, it, rather than starting out with white racism <laughs> and yeah. sort of going into the thing that people are really sensitive about first, yeah. you know, gain some critical thinking skills there and then moving mm-hmm. into those things. I use a lot of cartoons in my classes, to be honest with you, yeah. uh, videos that are sort of funny, but really, really do get to the heart of the, mm-hmm. of the theory in a way that students can like laugh along, but they, they're laughing because they actually get that what the person's saying is true. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So it's accessing their own knowledge about how discrimination and inequalities happen. For example, there's a fabulous video um, paralleling uh, pizza intersectionality. So it's the Supreme Pizza or the women of color. And by the way, um, the woman who does this video never says who the pizzas represent, huh. but the students totally know exactly what she's talking about. <laughs> and so then we, we sort of unpack at the end, like, how did you know that was funny? What? How did you know who she meant? Right. Mm-hmm. And so their own knowledge about these things. And then the yeah. other thing is that I try to have these meta-conversations, metacognitive conversations at the beginning of 
the term and the beginning of each class about here's some things you're, you might feel mm -hmm. and emotions you might have and thoughts you might have that are sort of telling you not to want to learn about this as we go along, mm. right? So yeah. we talk about guilt and hopelessness and anger and frustration and, and um, mm -hmm. you know, again, with the shame and feeling blamed. And also, you know, we talk about we're going to have pathways where you can think about how you can make make changes and we're going to have opportunities for you to take action. So, you know, if you start feeling the hopelessness, just know yeah. there's also going to be a path in this course where you can take that energy and do something with it and not just leave here completely depressed about what you've learned, right? So yeah, just warning them, I guess, ahead of time sometimes. And what does it mean if you start to be angry at the teacher? What, what, when you start to get mad at me, what does that mean? Can we, can we talk about that? Can we process that together? Um, mm -hmm. So just giving them some ideas of what they might come, come up against as we're learning. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. So uh, as you connect with students um, in terms of their own knowledge base, um, that creates a sense of student empowerment. Yes, um, we hope. <laughs> hopefully, yeah, that's the goal, right? Uh, is, is that ever threatening to other members of the administration or faculty at your institution? I mean, are there, are there any cases where students take the knowledge and do some social activism on your campus uh, at University of Houston at Clear Lake? Um, I would say yes, but they're positive examples. So I, my, my lab manager, she's a graduate student here, uh -huh. um, and she is a woman with uh, a disability. She's in a wheelchair. Uh -huh. and Having taken several of my courses and also working with me on research, she started to think about um, accessibility on the campus. And so she organized a group and she's been working with administration um, to start to think about these things. And she also has tools. She was sort of dismissed in one meeting where, you know, this was kind of a special interest issue. Uh, um, yeah. You know, it wasn't for the majority and uh -huh. so but she has the tools to push back against that and ask them to think a little more deeply about what does that mean yeah um, well, that's a good example mm -hmm. I don't think she angered anyone though yeah um, we you know we wouldn't hear about it right like, okay. <laughs> we wouldn't be the people that would be told that they're annoyed by this kind of behavior but I will say uh, in a similar way when I first got here 2006 I guess it was my second year I found out that we had a transgender student who was trying to push through our shared governance process, which means slow process, mm -hmm. um, adding gender identity and gender expression to our non-discrimination statement at the time. We had sexual orientation in there as of the mid-90s, but not, not gender identity. So I joined her, and there were three faculty and this one student who were basically mm -hmm. trying to navigate getting that policy changed by going through every little level of all the committees. And sometimes <laughs> we were for two years and uh, we finally, yeah. and during that time, I have to tell you, and we turned that into a research, a participatory research project. Mm -hmm. So I can you know, um, send you that reference as well. But, um, and we, we did publish it because she wanted other people to see what the process was like to try to help them with the process. But anyway, yeah. There were a lot of comments that came back through um, 
I'd say there are more um, colleagues than administrators because there would be other faculty serving on those committees or staff members who happen to be serving on particular shared governance committees where they would say things in a meeting that indicated they were definitely not in support of moving this forward mm -hmm. or threats mm -hmm. that would be made um, outside of meetings that um, they, you know, this one particular chair of the committee was going to come after people huh. who were saying that he didn't support this, which he literally mm -hmm. said out loud that he didn't support it. But um, so, you know, kind of like kind of threats and things like that. Um, mm. uh, so, but in the end, it got passed all the way up through the president at the time. So it, wow. it worked out. And, yeah. But it, that to me is untenured and, uh, mm. you know, new here. And we had one white male tenured person in that group. And so it was an interesting um we had a lot of strategy sessions about who was going to go talk to who, mm -hmm. and often it was a protected tenured person that got nominated to do that. Yeah. But yeah, who yeah. has the most privilege? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, let's see. <laughs> what um, kind of coalitions have you built? Um, I know uh, in terms of the professional society, uh, there are, it seems to be good coalition building going on. Um, and their August 2017 statement uh, on multicultural guidelines for the, uh, for the American Psychological Association. Um, so could you talk about the importance of those coalitions that you build with students and with other faculty and perhaps with community partners outside the university? So I do a lot of that work. I work at a local uh -huh. uh, charter school here in Houston. Oh, this charter yeah. school is not for the most gifted. This charter school is for students considered disposable, basically. Mm -hmm. They're low-income, um, Latinx students. Um, they've yeah. been kicked out of all other high schools or referred by the juvenile justice system to mm -hmm. this particular high school. Um, and this high school has created this wonderful reinforcement model. So all of the gangs of Houston are represented at this school, and mm. there's very rarely any mm. violence. Students are very invested in their education, maintaining mm. the space where they feel valued. Mm. Um, I've interviewed some of them. They've spoken about um, how the last high school that they were at probably doesn't know that they're gone. Wow. You know, yeah. so little attention paid to them. Um, and so this high school has done a wonderful job of, you know, keeping them safe and developing them, you know, in terms of academic achievement and their overall well-being. There's a lot of wraparound services offered. And the way that I got into that school is through one of my students who was uh -huh. taking one of my courses and we were talking about intersectionality and how it was helping her think about her work at the high school. Mm. And so she then introduced me to administrators um, and I've been working with them for four years now. Yeah. Um, another project that I work on is um, um, a nonprofit called Initiatives for uh, Healthy Communities. And mm -hmm. they have an after-school, out-of-school program, which means programs for students when they're not in school. So after school, mm -hmm. um, during the summertime. And they have academic enrichment programs. And why that matters is because these are housed in subsidized housing uh, communities. Mm -hmm. So it is also a poor population. It is um, mostly um, black families. And um, 
the um, social workers go on site rather than having the students go somewhere else. Um, and they work within the community and they're developing, again, identifying strengths rather than always pointing out the deficits. Um, yeah. An example of a project they recently did was that the students all researched African-Americans um, history mm. and they created a museum. They mm -hmm. created a museum and they invited the public. Oh, wow. So it was open to the public. Yeah, it, it was open for a month. So these are the types of community um, mm -hmm. coalitions that I have. Um, but it's also, again, with my attention to intersectionality and that I can't assume that because these are all students of color who mm -hmm. are poor, you know, the working poor, that they have the same needs. Their needs are different and their yeah. experiences um, in the world are different in some mm -hmm. ways. The same in, in, in many ways, but different in other ways. Yeah. Well, uh, what about, I mean, we're talking about different kinds of intersections. Uh, where does social class fit in? Uh, because you're, you've talked about subsidized housing, um, you know, a lot of poverty, charter schools. Um, where does where does social class fit in, not just with those um, projects outside of the university, but in your classroom and on your campus? That's so interesting you asked that, because Kim and I have been talking a lot about it, so I'll let her take this one. I don't even know. I'm just so giddy to talk about it right now, because, I mean, coming from psychology, it's one mm -hmm. of the... <laughs> One of the most famous disciplines for ignoring social class. Um, <laughs> if it's included, it's just considered like an income demographic variable that mm -hmm. should predict other things. And you know, so so Desi and I are both from working class backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I have been exploring this much more on a personal level in the last couple of years because even as someone who really went into college and graduate school very focused on social justice and I didn't mm -hmm. really honestly focusing the most on race and then LGBT issues because it seems I tend to focus on things where I have privilege and I ignore the things that I'm marginalized by yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because it's so uncomfortable to think about being oppressed, right? Um, <laughs> I have only recently started thinking about how much my own social class culture, I would call it, identity mm -hmm. and culture, have affected my career and my mm. uh, not fitting into academic spaces, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so the intersectional piece, of course, is that some aspects of my identity allow me to fit into those spaces. And I think help erase how much social class has been an influence. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to rediscover all of that. I just I just published a piece in December that is sort of a personal counter storytelling about my intersectional social location, but very much mm -hmm. thinking about working class culture and its impact on, you know, academic spaces and uh, trying to theorize about that while telling some personal stories. That was a really hard piece to write, but yeah. uh, I would say social class, of course it's present in every classroom, but it's certainly not um, discussed or acknowledged. It's rendered invisible, mostly, I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah. But I think I'm really bad, actually, at including that uh, and making sure it's, um, you know, I guess my first step would be including it at all, mm -hmm. and I think for harder for me to talk about the things where I'm a marginalized person yeah. um, in terms of classroom space. So right now, um, I, I honestly think with our student population, it may help me a lot in terms of connecting with students mm -hmm. because we have so many first-generation students. Um, 
I'm trying to be more visible as a working class slash first generation faculty member so that students know yeah. that we're here. People that come from their same place are here because they, they think we all were born kind of with the with the PhD and with a lot of money. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, for me as a Chicana working class background that my students assumed that I was hatched the way I am today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so losing yeah. to that, that um, you know, no, <laughs> this took a long time. Yeah. Um, I think it humanizes us, mm -hmm. but it also adding diversity to the university is acknowledging that right. professors, we are diverse. And mm -hmm. Kim and I are developing a piece on, we're writing a piece about social class and allies. Oh. And Elizabeth Cole wrote a piece um, published 2009, I think, on intersect and intersectionality and psychology. And her third recommendation is to look for where the similarities are. Mm -hmm. And so Kim and I are talking about, you know, she's white, I'm not. Um, but how our working class backgrounds have made us mm -hmm. good allies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. so we're trying to figure out the title, but right now it's something like uh, Unlikely Allies from Appalachia to East LA. <laughs> yeah. So that's where we're from. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Each of us are from. So, you know, we're trying to play around with this idea that, like, there's, some, you know, there's some aspects of our of our white supremacy culture that would prevent, have would have prevented us from being connected yes. and being not only yeah. colleagues, but really close friends. Um, and that's the mm -hmm. strength of the theory is that it helps us identify how structures work differently for different mm -hmm. groups, but it also helps us identify similarities. And that's where the coalition mm -hmm. building can happen. Yeah. Yeah, and I think social class, uh, and, and this has been true at, at when I was adjuncting for years and then at, here at Agnes Scott um, over the last almost 30 years, uh, social class is the hardest thing to talk about. Yeah. Um, it's hard for faculty, it's hard for students, um, and building coalitions, especially in the, you know, we're in the, in the uh, buckle of the Bible belt here. Um, and on top of land, my college is, it was a Civil War battlefield. And mm. so to cross, I mean, there are, you know, chasms between faculty and hourly staff, say, who are custodians and work in the dining hall or the outsourced, um, mostly uh, Mexican workers who uh, do our lawn work. Um, and so to try to build those kind of coalitions as we are in our living wage movement here is, is really hard. You don't get a whole lot of uh, faculty to get involved in that because um, of our own interest and uh, multiple, you know, things that we're working on. Uh, but social class is the hardest. I'm glad you mentioned staff because mm -hmm. our custodial staff and our facility staff mm -hmm. um, and our food services staff, I mean, um, these people are definitely rendered invisible on our yes. campus. Yeah. I think the faculty don't even know they're here. It's like, how do you mm -hmm. think these things happen, right? Like, yes. um, even yes. if they physically see someone, they don't even know they're there. Yeah. Um, and I find, and this has been part of my reflection more recently on classes, that I spend a lot of time talking to staff and hanging mm -hmm. out with staff in the hall, and like, oh, yeah, whatever happened with that thing with your family? And uh -huh. did you end up painting your house? You were worried about getting that done. And, you know, oh, your, your wife was in the hospital. You know, what was the story? And um, uh -huh. 
they tell me all the time, like, faculty don't talk to us. Faculty are mean to us, rude mm-hmm. to us, talk down to us, you know. Yeah. Um, I I find it um, quite upsetting, actually. Yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised by it, I guess, but... Um, yeah, they're they're kind of shocked when faculty yeah. even acknowledge that they're mm-hmm. in the room. I I was told once by a woman who cleaned our suite um, on a I think biweekly basis or every every twice a week. She said um, we were told not to speak to faculty when we yeah. come into this. Yeah, and they, she also told me they rotate them. This may not be true anymore. This was years ago. They rotate us every so many months so that we don't get to know the faculty because then we might mm-hmm. start talking to them and distracting them from their important job, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, that was very upsetting to me too because we had sort of started to get to know this woman and she was like part of our suite and mm-hmm. we considered her part of that family and then she's like, oh no, they won't let me stay long because then we'll, we'll distract you all from, you know, being intellectuals, I guess. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate you bringing up that that issue, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's our um, Latinx men who are landscapers who are told not to speak to our students. I'm at a historic women's college, and so right. there's so much racism and uh, yeah. stereotyping going on in that, where to begin. Um, and so as part of our living wage campaign, we had for a while um, – ESOL classes that broke down those barriers. Um, but still, I mean, uh, we have folks work, and as I'm sure you do uh, on your campus, making poverty wages. Um, mm-hmm. So um, it, it's hard to raise awareness on that uh, and get people involved in, in making that kind of change, especially at the administrative level where there is the most privilege. Yeah, yes. Um, so we're talking about um, engaged learning for social justice here and um, encountering these matrices, uh, is, if that's the plural <laughs> of matrix, uh, of domination. Um, and so what would you say to someone who was just becoming conscientized to the issue of intersectionality, um, like a faculty member who's you know, starting to think, well, you know, maybe I should um, make my syllabi, my whatever course, more inclusive. Uh, what advice would we give them, maybe? Mm-hmm. Or? Yeah, if you would, you know, as you do workshops, as you, you know, let's say someone who is, who has been, um, you know, pretty committed to the uh, traditionalist approach where it's only white male, hetero-European people represented in the syllabus. Oh, they haven't even done any kind of diversity, it sounds like. Okay. Yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would certainly you know, lend my support in whatever way possible in terms of, because, you know, first I was thinking about someone who'd been including diversity but hadn't gotten quite to intersectionality mm-hmm. yet. That too. Just Let's get to that. Yeah. Well, I'm just reminding them that they're going to be pulled to an additive approach and then we have to mm-hmm. keep reminding them like what does intersectionality look like? How does it interact? And how do you show co-constructive mm-hmm. um, elements across all of these different things? And the, the also the going back to Desi's, and I'll let her talk about it. The the tendency mm-hmm. to think about it as an individual level uniqueness issue, and forgetting about the structural issues and the power issues. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I would sort of try to focus on some of those habits, cognitive habits that we slip into mm-hmm. shortcuts. Yeah. That 
up rendering it not intersectionality. Mm -hmm. I think before then is reminding all of us that it's not going to be perfect. When we talk about discrimination in my mm -hmm. class, my classrooms, um, you know, students feel anxious about like, oh my gosh, this, does this mean I'm a racist? And I talk yeah. about how it's not about one day you're going to be 100% not racist or not sexist or et cetera. But it's mm -hmm. rather, it's about getting better every day, just doing, trying to do a little bit better. And so the first time that you write your syllabus with diversity and intersectionality in mind, you know, it's going to be a good a good draft. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But over time, just like me, just like Kim, I mean, we didn't start out where we're at now. I mean, it took years yeah. and years. Yeah. And that's okay. And it's okay to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, but to talk to other people for ideas and you know, mm -hmm. feedback, the way we would t tell our students, yeah. you know, it's not about yeah. being perfect. It's about being better. Yeah. And I would say just she's making me think of this that she, she said, we didn't start out where we are today, and I was thinking, I feel like I don't know how to do this yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, so way better. I, 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 I think I can say I'm better than when I tried to start doing it, but like, and I have a book on it, but like, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's a lifelong. I think it's a lifelong situation because it is so complex, right? Yeah. I'm thinking about fictionality, it's going to be a different experience. Like, I'm thinking when I started, I felt so angry about the injustices of education and. You know, so mm -hmm. that's my experience for someone who's a white man, some who I've talked to, they feel afraid that they're just going to end up looking racist, you know, so there are different uh, responses to this experience. And again, it's mm -hmm. not about being perfect. It's just about being better. Just yeah. do it. Just do yeah. it. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> well, okay. one, la one last question, because we're getting at time here, um, is... Uh, we're, we're at a certain, you know, political time uh, that provides a context uh, for our classes. And so it, uh, for someone doing intersectional theory and practice, it seems even more um, uh, relevant and necessary uh, yeah. to be doing these things. And so how do you think the current political times have... Um, inspired, I guess, to be put a positive spin on it, your um, commitment to doing these strategies in the classroom? <laughs> well, it makes it stronger, I guess. But um, mm. I was going to say that I gave a, we did a symposium on this at the 2017 SPICI, which is that Society for the Psychological yeah. Studies Social Issues, mm -hmm. um, at the conference. And my talk was about four, I think, four aspects that had to be present mm -hmm. um, as we teach about social justice issues and intersectionality during the current climate. Um, mm -hmm. And I said, and I, I listed them in a particular order, and I think they have to be done in this order, and I gave the rationale for that, and I'll, I won't do that here. But okay. I think the first one has to be protecting students from harm. So in the classroom space, mm -hmm. there were a lot more, let's say, comments or actions and behaviors that have been mm -hmm. um, harmful to people. So I think our first role in that is to make sure that's not happening or when it mm -hmm. happens, it gets corrected or stopped. And yeah. I think the second one is, people might be surprised, the second one is protecting faculty from harm because there yeah. are a lot of faculty that are being targeted right now. And the AAUP is all over this mm -hmm. and they have a lot of resources on this, but there are people who are specifically, you know, looking for faculty who do this work and then yeah. trying mm -hmm. to discredit them, yeah. harass them, 
death yeah. threats to them, try mm-hmm. to get them fired, all of that has to happen, uh, is happening. And also just on their own campus, faculty being pr- protected from harm. Um, and then the third one I said is protect the learning environment. So mm-hmm. the students have to be protected from harm, then faculty, and then the learning environment has to be protected. So if things are being brought into the classroom as a result of the current climate, like, for example, saying that facts don't matter or that we can make up our own facts, yeah, that's not protecting the learning environment, right? Mm-hmm. So that has to be the next thing. And then the fourth one I put, incorporate intersectionality. And I hate that it has to be the fourth thing, but uh, you can't yeah. learn about intersectionality if you're afraid you're being harmed or, you know, you're not safe. right? So yeah. that was sort of the order. And then I think just staying connected to other social justice educators through professional mm-hmm. associations, but also people that you find in your local local community or on your own campus. They may not be in your program, but whatever, you know, anybody that you can connect with or an online community. There's a lot of really great Facebook groups, I think, that people can find support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to mention, we had a, a retreat that I co-hosted in Santa Cruz, California in October. Desi was mm-hmm. also there. We had 12 women come there and talk about teaching, difficult dilemmas in teaching social justice. Mm-hmm. One particular woman, the dilemma that she brought with us, brought to us, and she's a white woman, was that she wasn't doing enough for her students of color yeah. in terms of their mm-hmm. on campus. And Desi knows exactly who I'm talking about. And this woman talked for mm-hmm. maybe 15 solid minutes about all this amazing She's running herself into the ground, yes. not sleeping, not eating, not nourishing herself. Mm. And she's like, I'm not doing enough. And so we had to basically mm-hmm. kind of do an intervention with her about self-care. Yeah. She's not going to serve anybody if she runs herself into the ground like that. Yes. So yeah. we can't lose sight of just keeping our, a little bit of our own sanity if possible during all of this. Um, so yeah, that's just me. Those are my rants about that topic. Mm-hmm. Because the only thing I would add is yes, 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 yes to all of Kim's points. Um, the only thing I would add is, again, this, one of the strengths of intersectionality is um, using this as a tool in our classrooms, we can highlight how different issues affect different groups differently. We can assume mm-hmm. that my experience is the way you all experience the, the world. But the other piece of this is what we have in common. And from that, we mm-hmm. can bring together in community to really think about we're in this together yeah. we're all in this so we need yeah. to figure out where the where those where that common ground is yeah yeah that's a good note to end on you've been listening to nothing never happens our audio engineer is china wilson our assistant audio engineer is abigail cox the media specialist is kirsten schultz and technical consultant is Emily Gwynn. Our theme music and interstitial pieces are by Aviva and the Flying Penguins, performed by Aviva and the Flying Penguins and Lance Eric Hagen. Thanks for listening.